Why on earth am I doing this so early? <laughs> so, for those of you who's joining in, um, it's 5.37 in the morning. <laughs> I, set, uh, I set an early alarm so that I could get up and deal with whatever came out of this uh, .NET Foundation FBI Pwn Passwords announcement thing. And I don't know if it's just me, but like every time I set an alarm to get up early, something in my brain, as soon as I go to bed, it's like, you're going to have to get up, you're going to have to get up, you're going to have to get up. And I just can't sleep properly. So I don't, I don't think I've slept very well last night. And then I had to schedule this post to go live at like 1am to align with other things. And then I'm sitting there thinking about stuff. Did I leave any keys in the repository? <laughs> I'll talk more about that in a moment. Should I disable the automatic tweet when I blog? Just so it doesn't announce it too far and I can wait till I get up and do it. Which I did. So I got up and sat in front of the computer at 1am. Anyway, all of that said, let's, uh, let's start where I normally start. And then I'm going to do things in a little bit of reverse order because I'm going to talk about the latest thing first because I think that's what people probably want to hear about the most and it's top of mind right now. First thing, clearly in a weekly update, is the sponsor. So this week's sponsor is Probably. That's uh, Probably with an E-L-Y on the end of it. Tired of poor coverage and false positives with your DAST scanner. Reinvent web application security today. So I had, uh, this is not the first time Probably has been on there. And as I said last time, false positives are the thing that I keep hearing most from people that they absolutely despise with their automated software. Back in the day, when I used to be able to go into organizations and see what they're doing, we will be able to do that again one day, I'd go in there and, and the thing that would continually frustrate them every time we talk about automated analysis is they're like, yeah, we use this tool over here, but we've got so many false positives that we don't use that tool over there. It just like sits there and gathers dust, but we do check the box to say we've got the tool, but we're not using the tool. So I think probably is actually touching on something there that is the bane of many people's existence when it comes to automated analysis. So big thanks to Probably. Please go and check them out and uh, thank them for helping me do what I do, including being able to get up at this crazy hour. Thank you for people that are just joining in there. Texas Warsaw. Isn't this like I still can't get over the fact that we get to sit here in like different parts of the world and broadcast in like 1080p high definition video from a room that looks kind of cool at the moment, if I'm honest and do it for free and you can be anywhere and get access to this maybe i'm just like old enough to remember like when you couldn't do that <laughs> old enough to remember a time before we had internet i was 18 when i first started using the internet in 95 so that dates me uh but yeah it's cool like this is super super cool being able to do this johannesburg george is in johannesburg i don't even know how to pronounce where steve's from good evening from the beholas behole uh, all i know is i haven't been there darren's from oz Best place. Best place here, other than Melbourne, but that's another story at the moment. We might come back to that later on. All right, let me let me jump into this because I part of the reason I got up so early is because I wanted to announce the .NET fan, or, or rather respond to announcements for the .NET and FBI stuff, do this video, and then I actually need to record a uh, another video for, for stuff that I do actually need to earn money from to make a living so that I can then do all the other stuff I don't get to make a living from, including playing around with all the 3D stuff in front of me, which I'm going to talk about later on as well. All right. Have I been pwned? Open source, pwned passwords, .NET Foundation, FBI. Let's jump into this. Oh my God, where do I start? August last year, 
I published a blog post and said, I am going to take Have I Been Pwned open source. Now, seems like a good idea. <laughs> Niall's there too. G'day, Niall. <laughs> seemed like a good idea at the time. And it was a good idea. And a, a large amount of the intention of this was to try and ad- address sort of the single point of failure problem where it's like it's it's just me. And as I half-jokingly said in the blog post I published a few hours ago, if I have an unfortunate jet ski accident, who will take over? Now, there's a slightly tangential thing. Part of the whole like planning the future of my life and everything process and doing things like wills and that kind of stuff is, is I do actually have someone who is like the the digital guardian of my thing. So there is someone where if I do suddenly demise very, very quickly, someone who's a very close friend who I trust a lot does actually get to take over the keys to my digital life. Uh, now, also, if you haven't like planned this, this is a good thing to plan and it, Okay, I've got a lot of projects and things that are sort of important things as well, but all of us have digital life things. Who gets them if you have a jet ski accident, freeze in the Norwegian snow, no, whatever it may be. Interesting question to ask. So anywho, I wanted to have some redundancy for this project because I'm, I'm just conscious of how many dependencies are being made on it. Uh, and, and the idea of open sourcing was to try and, you know, one, address that, two, create some transparency around what's actually happening with the background of the service, because there's always people like, hey, you're just going to save all of the email addresses and passwords and do something nasty with them. Uh, it's the internet. People do this stuff. People make the comments. I don't know if they do the other stuff, saving their passwords. Uh, so, so there was that bit. And of course, all of the other good things about open source, being able to have peer review, uh, take contributions to it, you know, hopefully get community growth around a project can, that can just grow in different ways. Yeah, all of that was, was, was very well intentioned. Now, there are several major challenges with this, and I, I dislike, I think it's probably the kindest term I can use, I dislike the assertion that a bunch of people think... Uh, it is just a matter of like flicking the switch. It's like, I will just make the repository public and hey, now we go. There are many reasons why that is infeasible with a project like Have I Been Pwned? And then the first, probably most obvious one is I'm nearly eight years in to running a pet project and doing all sorts of stuff with it that was just never designed to be there as a, an open source community project. Uh, I have... I have probably checked secrets into the repository at one time or another. And you can get away with that to a degree when you're uh, when you're a one-person operation. No, not so much when other people start looking at your code. In fact, when I made Pwn Passwords public, I literally just took the current version of everything, um, went over like 10 times to make sure there are no keys or anything like that in there and create a new repository. So you'll see if you have a look at what's out there in open source now that there's no version history, which is fine because there's really not much code anyway. But that is actually one of the things that kept me awake last night because I was laying there at one o'clock going, oh, I hope I don't get up and like all of Have I Been Pwned has just been nuked or something like that. That's going to be a really bad look. Um, but no, I'm quite confident there's not. And then I realized after I got up, Home Passwords does have, uh, it's completely own Azure storage construct anyway. So even if the keys were there for that, it's only data, which is already fairly downloadable. So not so bad. But you could still nuke the storage, which would cause all sorts of other problems. So uh, if you find keys in the repository, please let me know. But the whole point is, is that you know that is is just not a simple process. Then, of course, how do you coordinate the community? Like, how do you actually deal with pull requests? And and I've got to be honest, I'm not quite sure. I I really don't know. And 
the the point that we're at in the sort of maturity life cycle of open sourcing this is uh, I'm at the barely sufficient stage. <laughs> I have barely sufficient knowledge to be able to do this. And there's a lot I don't know, but I figure I'll work it out at the time. Now, that, to be honest, is is why I wanted the .NET Foundation. Because the .NET Foundation, first of all, they are non-profit. They're independent from Microsoft. There are a bunch of people who either live in the Microsoft world or in some cases, like Claire Novotny's case, work for Microsoft, which is fine. There's that association, but the, the intent of it is to keep it uh, independent uh, and, and fiercely independent too, I must say. Everyone I've spoken to there is very, very clear about that. So the .NET Foundation is a home that can pick up .NET-related projects uh, and actually provide the guidance and the, the stewardship around them, which is which is great because, frankly, that's what I need. And I'm going to be leaning on the folks there like really, really extensively in terms of uh, I've got lots of requests for things or how do I coordinate features or, or things like that. So I'm not sure. Now, I have found that as time passes... I become more comfortable in talking about the things I don't know. Um, I, I often struggle with merge requests. Uh, there's a whole bunch of, of semantics and behaviors and social norms around open source projects I don't understand. I see things in Git and I wonder what they are, GitHub, and I wonder what they are. So this for me is going to be quite the learning experience. And, and someone just tweeted only about half an hour ago, something to the effect of, you know, this is when you can step back now or something. And it's like, no, actually, I think this is going to make more work for me. It's going to make more work for me in the immediate term and possibly into the future as well. So this is sort of coming back to the point about why has it taken so long to get here? This this process of going open source doesn't reduce the work, not in the immediate term. It creates more work. So there's that. The, uh, the .NET Foundation as well, when I sort of looked at, you know, like what what can I open source? Pwn passwords is the thing that really stood out. And, and there's a few reasons for this. If you look at all the have I been pwned, the, the, the Pwn passwords bit came more recently, a few years ago. So you, you've almost got everything under the one banner, but have I been pwned with all the email addresses and the API that you can get the key for and all that sort of stuff kind of sits here. And then Pwn password sits here and there's an umbrella that sits over the top of them, which is the same logical brand. But Pwn passwords is very, very simple. It is, and in fact, in the time I've already been talking today, you could have read all the code. Uh, and some of that's probably terrible as well, so I'm looking forward to people fixing that. But uh, it, it is really just an API that you pass a five-character SHA-1 hash prefix to, and then it returns a bunch of SHA-1 hash suffixes. That is it. What makes it a bit more clever is that there's a Cloudflare worker. So you see that there's two repositories which now have public visibility. One is the Cloudflare worker. And I've worked with the folks at Cloudflare in order to make sure that that is public. And they've done some cleanup around that. You can go to the repository and see who's done the work on that. Thank you, Erwin. Uh, and, and funnily enough, Erwin's someone I've known for many, many years. I only realized recently that he'd moved to Cloudflare and he's in Australia, which actually makes it really handy for time zones. So there's this Cloudflare worker that gets requests. It does a little bit of manipulation of some of the requests. It's also the point at which a lot of the caching is done at Cloudflare. And I tweeted a stat yesterday. I am up to 926.92 million requests in the last month, 99.6% of which have been cached, which is really, really cool. And in fact, I gave people a little challenge. I was like, when do you think I'm going to hit the 1 billion requests for the previous month mark? Now, let's have a look at the stats. So where did I say we were before? 926 
We were at 926.92 million for the last month. As of now, we're at 933.11 million. I actually think, if I had to guess, I think it's going to be later next month or possibly July because these these usage patterns are very unpredictable. But look, let's just agree it's getting towards a billion, which is sort of one of the reasons as well why I wanted to pick this bit, other than the fact it's a fairly autonomous piece of code. Uh, That's why I wanted to pick this bit and make it open source, because getting towards a billion requests a month makes it sort of an integral dependency for many organizations. Now, because of the design of it, I got no idea who uses it. And you can go and look at the code and see that I don't log stuff or anything like that. I could probably go to the Azure dashboard and I could look at the inbound requests. I could go to the Cloudflare logs and I could look at where the requests are coming from. Seems like a lot of hard work, though. Uh, but but the, the point is, like by design, I don't really want to know where they come from. I don't really want to know who's using it. I just want to have a sense of the volume. So because there's so many dependencies on it, this sort of also made it a, a natural choice to open source because now I can say to people, look, like go and build against the API. I know that some people want to download the hashes and do it all internally. This is always going to be better for several reasons. Uh, less work, cool anonymity model. It's super, super fast. And one of the big reasons, this will bring me to the FBI bit in a moment, is I can push new passwords to an online service much faster than I can push them to a multi-gigabyte downloadable corpus. So here's what I mean by that. Let's imagine, well, this will bring us to the FBI bit in a moment, but let's imagine we can just get a constant flow of new passwords that have been found in compromised systems. If I can get a constant flow of them into an online service and someone's just calling an API and almost like magic, it's actually data-driven websites, but let's call it magic. (laughs) Almost by magic, you're getting the very latest passwords that have been found circulating out there in the wild that people are using now to try and abuse other people's accounts, to take them over via credential stuffing, to cyber them, uh, pick a fancy marketing term, to do bad things to them. Like imagine that we have all of that just constantly feeding into that online corpus where every time you hit that API, you're getting the latest and greatest stuff. We can do that much more efficiently than having to download multiple gigabytes worth of data and then extract it and then build it into your own system. So I want to incentivize people to use this, not because I make any money from it. Clearly, I don't make anything from it because the whole thing's free. But because it is better for individuals and organizations alike. So I really want that API to be successful. Now, this brings us to the FBI piece as well. And the discussions with them about this go back quite some time. Now, obviously, just recently, I announced the, the bit about the FBI providing data from uh, that was collected via the Emitech botnet that was available and have I been pwned. This has been bubbling away in the background for a lot longer than that. <laughs> so the Emitech thing was more like a, a last-minute thing compared to this. But I really, really love that premise where the FBI, like of all organizations the fbi everyone knows the fbi everyone i've watched a lot of movies i've heard of these guys like this it was so super cool for them to say oh we'd like to start feeding data into have i been pwned so that that was it was always a little bit like the congress moment where they call up and go would you like to come to congress i'm like are you really congress (laughs) do you really want me to do this so the fbi bit was very exciting and when you think about it just being a bit more serious for a moment they're in a great position 
to make a very positive difference to online security because they're involved in all sorts of investigations, some of which we read about, a whole bunch of others I can only imagine. And they come across these credentials all the time. And one of the things that that they wanted to do is is obviously make these... Let let me rephrase credentials because it is just passwords. One thing they want to do is make these passwords available so that we can start doing good stuff with them. But also they want to protect privacy and anonymity and all this sort of thing as well. So there are are no credential pairs. There will be passwords that are made available, but there are no associated email addresses or usernames or anything like that, which is good because that's how Have I Been Pwned's pwned passwords works anyway all i need is the passwords because the 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 whole sort of premise of this is going back to nist guidance from a few years ago you know block previously known bad passwords doesn't matter who used them if it's a bad password and it's out there in circulation that's the thing you want to avoid using so uh so they'll just provide the passwords the the other thing is is that just as i have been reluctant to provide passwords in plain text i'll come back to that in a moment they were reluctant for the same reasons but providing them as a SHA-1 hash and NTLM hash, no problems. So if there's a bunch of junk in those hashes, I'll rephrase that. Actually, let's talk about why I have them as, as hashes anyway. A, a heap of the data that's gone into Pwn passwords has been parsed out of dumped data. Now, turns out hackers don't always do a lot of nice clean data parsing. And a lot of the passwords, particularly things like the credential stuffing list, were really messy. And what I mean by messy is that it wasn't just the password. It was like an entire row. But perhaps there was one row in the source data that was column, uh, column. Uh, let's say tab delimited instead of comma delimited. Uh, and whatever parsing tool they were using didn't actually pick up the different fields. And therefore, you have an entire row. And that row has someone's phone number and their date of birth and their home address. Uh, and it's 200 characters long, but there's a bunch of crap in there. If I provided that in plain text, that's PII that I've just directly provided, but hey, there's like over half a billion passwords in Pwn passwords. I'm not going to go through and read every line and make sure they're okay. So by hashing it, yes, you can crack hashes, but someone has to know like that entire line with the birth date here and the address there, and it's delimited in this fashion. If they know that already, well, then it's, is it really, yes, it's cracking it. But from the perspective of disclosing someone's PII, you have to know it already (laughs) in order to crack it. And it's something that's very, very, very unique. So anyway, obviously, same idea with the FBI. If they can provide the data in that format, then it protects any sort of parsing errors or things like that. We don't really want to store passwords in SHA-1 or uh, or NTLM in any sort of online system, uh, but equally, you can't exactly put them into Pwn passwords in Bcrypt because salts and things don't work. We're going down a rabbit hole of why certain hashing algorithms are suitable for this or not. There's blog posts about it. So anyway, that was their idea. And all of this was kind of aligning around the same time, you know, wanting to drive this open source and the FBI with, with this, this requirement. And, and I sort of went, you know what would be cool? It would be cool <laughs> if we combine these together. Like, let's just make it open source and then get someone else to build the FBI bits because we need an ingestion pipeline. So we need an endpoint somewhere where someone, such as the FBI, and there are others I'll come back to, can just feed in passwords in SHA-1 NTLM hash pairs, and then they go into the Pwn passwords database. Now the others, it might not just be the FBI in future. There are other law enforcement agencies out there, other law enforcement agencies I've worked with with Have I Been Pwned that I've been public about, other ones that I've not been public about. I don't get them back doors, but sometimes I get interesting questions. 
there are many others in many parts of the world who come across compromised data throughout the course of their investigation. There are private enterprises that come across uh, uh, compromised credentials and things in the courses of their investigations. So I would like us to get to the point where there is an endpoint there where approved organizations, which I'll clarify in a moment, can send these hash pairs and then they can flow through into have I been pwned's pwned passwords and be searchable. Now, say approved organizations, because obviously there's a sort of thing that could be abused. I could imagine the whole thing being flooded with junk. So we're going to have to be very careful. Somewhere in here, there needs to be some sort of auth model where the FBI has, for want of a better term, an API key, and they can feed data into there. Uh, Acme Core, who's doing a lot of good stuff in the cyber and is willing to provide passwords in there, has an API key, and they can feed their passwords in and so on and so forth. And the hope is that this becomes a good open source community-centric definition of bad passwords. That'd be a great outcome. Now, there's a bunch of mechanical things that need to happen here. So, for example, when a password is received by an endpoint somewhere, it's going to have to go into two separate repositories. And I don't have an online repository for NTLM hashes at the moment. It's just SHA-1. But there is the downloadable corpus. I want to keep the NTLM stuff going because people use that to download and then use offline against their Active Directory instances. So on-prem Active Directory stuff is still stored in NTLM. There are uh, services out there such as uh, SafePass.me, one of my regular sponsors, who then use those NTLM hashes in their software products so that people can see which of these passwords are being used by people in their organization. So I want to keep that going. That's a really, really valuable thing. So we're going to be receiving these passwords. I've got to go into these two corpuses. The searchable stuff via API is going to need to invalidate Cloudflare cache. So I just talked about like 99.6% of requests go to Cloudflare's cache. Uh, this new password is only going to be searchable if we invalidate the cache for that hash prefix. So not only does the data need to flow in, but we need to invalidate the cache. Then, because I do still want to have that downloadable corpus, we're going to have to create great big zipped archives on some sort of a cadence that people can download. Let's say for argument's sake, once a month is what I suggested in the blog post. Um, and part of the reason why I don't want to do it too frequently is a massive files, Cloudflare hosts it all, uh, caches it all, which, well, actually, I host it on Azure. I pay some bandwidth for it to get from Azure to Cloudflare, and then it gets cached at Cloudflare. And my God, I'm pleased I don't pay for the whole thing because I think I figured out my bill would be about $15,000 a month for people to download those corpuses because egress data is so expensive. Uh, what else? I think that I think that's basically it. Like it's it's not an overly complicated thing. Um, I'll talk about the 3D prints in a moment. <laughs> I was just looking at the blog post. That was the last thing in the blog post. So yeah, like that's that's what it is. If you have questions, please put it in the um, in your <laughs> in the comments here. Uh, and of course, you can chuck it into the uh, in the comments of the blog post, or you can just go and grab the code and start looking at that as well. I uh, I think that even with the code as it runs at the moment, there are probably places it can be more efficient. I still don't have good deployment models that lend themselves well to community contributions as well. So I'm going to be looking to both the Cloudflare folks and the .NET Foundation folks in order to, to get that set up. I can't remember the last time I deployed Pwn passwords. It seems to have worked fine, <laughs> but because it's such a simple code base and not much changes, I haven't done it for a while. In fact, even when I added the uh, the padding 
situation a while back. Some of you might remember there's a uh, there's random padding that can be added just to ensure that response sizes are always different and you can't sort of figure out what hash prefix might have been searched for based on the TLS packet sizes. Uh, even the padding we added, we just added at the Cloudflare worker level, which was really, really cool. Uh, now this, so this announcement was basically two things. It was the open sourcing bit with the .NET Foundation. It was the FBI bit. I had originally planned for it to be a three-part announcement. The third part of it was going to be hitting the one billion requests per month, and that was going to have a bunch of stuff about Cloudflare on it. Obviously, it's not at a billion a month now. What actually seemed to happen is over Easter, the traffic kind of really dipped, and I'd gone from like 920 in the last month sometime in March, and then I got into April, and then then it was like 870 million. So I go, okay, that's, that's going the opposite way to what I expected. And now, of course, the figure I just gave for those who have just joined in is it's now 933 million for the last month. So when I do hit a billion, I'm going to publish something uh, that's going to be a little bit more about the, uh, the the work that Cloudflare's done too. Maybe this announcement will help accelerate things. Who knows? All right. So uh, let's have a look. What's in here? Bloodthirsty. What's your Facebook password? Even I don't know my Facebook password, mate. <laughs> I know my master password for one password, and that's it. <laughs> Donnell, if I apologize if I mispronounced that, you can evaluate the cache every X days and guarantee freshman, uh, freshness of minimum X days. Is there a use case where you need recently added passwords to appear in HRBP immediately? So this is a good question because the, the question sort of becomes that the balance of where is the sweet spot between how up to date the passwords are versus how much benefit we get from actively caching the data. So, so let's do the mathematics on it. There are uh, 16 to the power of five different possibilities in terms of what can be queried. So there's just over a million cached items because we're only caching based on the first five characters of the hash prefix, which of course uh, uh, are a total of 16 different possible hexadecimal values. So what we're looking for here is of that one million odd different possible queries, how frequently should we invalidate individually cached items. I, I think this depends a little bit on the volume of data. So what I would want to do, let's imagine hypothetically, and I don't think this is the most efficient way to do it, but let's imagine that every password that gets added is a is, is an individual password. So as an endpoint takes one password at a time, SHA1 NTLM together. And if there's 500,000 passwords found, there's 500,000 requests. Again, I don't think it's very efficient, but for the sake of example, what I wouldn't want to have is a situation where out of those 500,000 passwords, a whole bunch of them have the same hash prefix because they will. So I don't want to like invalidate it. And then two minutes later, I'm invalidating it again. And then 10 minutes later, I'm invalidating the same hash prefix again. I think your point here about invalidating over a period of time makes sense and the suggestion I made in the blog post is maybe for example once every 24 hours now that's not invalidating the entire cache every 24 hours but perhaps what we do is something along the lines of uh, if there is a new item for a hash prefix and cache has not been invalidated within the last 24 hours invalidate it and then we, we basically just sort of set a timer going so you know after that in the next 24 hours it won't invalidate but if anything new comes uh, in that period well then it will get flushed after that so i just want to avoid the situation where we lose that beautiful beautiful efficiency of like the 99.6 percent case hit ratio having said that the more people that use this service and the more requests there are, the more likely you are to get a cache hit instead of a cache miss because it's only, I'm 
wondering now. I was, well, I was going to say it only takes one person to make a, a request to repopulate the cache, but due to the way Cloudflare's cache populates to all of their edge nodes, 200 plus edge nodes around the world, it may be that you need different hits from different edge nodes. So it might be a bit more complex than that. Regardless, same, um, same premise here in that we don't want to just keep invalidating too quickly. Bloodthirsty says you prefer to use password manager or remember your pass. Given I'm on one passwords board of advisors, um, I'm obligated to say, <laughs> actually, for many years before I was on their board, uh, I used a password manager. So yes, the password manager is the only practical way for us to have decent passwords today. Ivan, hi, what happened to Report URI? There's been no news for some time. Scott's still out there. He's still running it. He drives his race car around sometimes and then he does Report URI. Report URI is still going ahead. Uh, there is a bunch of stuff uh, happening in the background with Report URI. So I will talk more about that another time. But thanks for asking. Um, and, and I think the very fact that you've asked and so there hasn't been news for a while is something that I'm going to, you know, I'm actually going to screen cap this because I'm going to send that to Scott and ask him why he hasn't been talking about it. <laughs> Because it is kind of still his baby. Um, someone whose name I can't pronounce here says, what is your biggest concern using a password manager, even with 2FA? My biggest concern is someone else getting my entire keychain and getting everything that's stored in the password manager. I think that's everyone's biggest concern with a password manager. So the, the, the question that I often get on this is people say, uh, when you use a password manager, aren't you putting all your eggs in one basket? And then what happens if that basket is taken? Uh, yes, you are putting all your eggs in one basket and you're screwed if someone gets your basket. <laughs> so, um, what, what you've got to look at though, and this is a bit like personal risk assessment, uh, what is the, when we look at different ways of securing our things, what is the likelihood of something going wrong? What is the impact when it goes wrong? And then what are the mitigating controls? So let's start with not having a password manager. If you don't have a password manager, you are almost certainly reusing passwords that are weak it's just unless you're rain man if you're rain man congratulations you've probably got many other opportunities in life but if you're reusing passwords and they're weak the likelihood of that being abused is extremely high because you will be in a data breach somewhere sooner or later i've been in 25 that i know of probably at least that many that i don't know of and someone will get one of those passwords because it's in plain text or it's stored as a very weak hashing algorithm and then they will use it to break into your other things. And the impact of that is pretty high because for most people, that one password they use everywhere is the skeleton key to the digital lives. <laughs> this feels like a sales pitch, but I've just done this talk so many times. So uh, the likelihood is very high. The impact is very high. You really don't have many mitigating controls when all you're just doing is reusing the string in your head. When you have a password manager that you use correctly, <laughs> so this is a really important point. Uh, if it is one password, the application one password made by Agile Bits, and you set that up as it's meant to be used, the likelihood of someone actually breaking into your keychain is exceedingly rare. Uh, they're almost certainly not going to break into the online service. They will need to have your secret key, which is a GUID. They will need to have access to a device uh, which they could pass a second factor of authentication with, which is extremely unlikely. If they can get through all of those things, you have probably really, really screwed things up. Oh, they need your master password as well. Uh, and then they will get into your things and you'll have a very, very bad day of it. So the impact is very, very high. The likelihood is extremely low and the mitigating controls is strong master password, uh, obviously being conscious that we could have an attack against a device, keeping the software and things up to date, avoiding phishing attacks, all the usual stuff. Uh, 
So it is the best mousetrap that we have at the moment. And, and the thing you got to do is you, you got to look at all of this as not just is this thing a password manager, perfect in and of itself, because there are risks, but out of all of the options that we have, what is the best way of doing this? And inevitably that is password managers. Uh, first is a nice expert in knowledge about abilities of mega corporations. Why do you have Siri, Alexa all over your house? Why not open source implementation? Which open source product actually works on home assistance like that? Um, it's it's conscious. I was going to say conscious risk taking, but I think that that almost sounds too risky. I've got a lot of connected shit in my house. <laughs> Let's be honest. I'm going to talk about more of that in a moment because I do want to go into the IoT stuff. Um, and I am conscious that a bunch of it uh, does send some data data home. Um, and, and I see this particularly because I run a pie hole and I can look at all the DNS queries from different things. It's like, why is my washing machine talking to Samsung? You know, what's it doing with that? But honestly, when it comes to something like, uh, like Amazon Echoes, I've got an Amazon Echo in both of the kids' rooms. I frankly have not seen enough to make me concerned that that in any way impacts their privacy in a negative fashion. Uh, now, some people lose their mind at that because they go, well, what about that time where that person was murdered and then the Amazon was listening and then the feds got the data? And, and there are always, always, always these edge case scenarios like that. But I'm not concerned about it for my purposes here. And, and most importantly, like you've you got to look at all these things as th there is a balance. Uh, there are some risks on one side and there are some benefits on the other side. I love the benefits of things like I hear my daughter using it all the time to, uh, to check her spelling. Uh, so she'll go, you know, Alexa, how do you spell whatever? The kids use it all the time to manage the home automation in their room, changing their lights, changing the colors, turning on different scenes and things. Uh, I use she whose name I can't talk about, otherwise she'll start listening and interject my conversation <laughs> uh, when I'm riding my bike home to open the garage door. So they provide me with a whole bunch of upsides in my personal life that I find are valuable and the net position is positive. Other people will be very worried, rightly or not, that's their own decision, uh, about the privacy side of it, and they just don't want to share anything. I'm comfortable with the balance. That's where we are. All right, so now I'm talking about IoT. <laughs> Let's go on and talk more about that. I think I'm off the have I been pwned stuff. So I've spoken a lot about all the different IoT things I've been doing. Uh, I have had a big week. <laughs> this feels like a regular thing, my week in IoT. I've been replacing a lot of the old traditional halogen globes in the house. These things absolutely drive me nuts. So this house, uh, it's, it, it's a lovely house. It feels pretty modern until you start scratching the surface. And what I mean by that is about 14 years ago, I've been here nearly six years, but about 14 years ago, uh, the place was obviously renovated. I'm not sure what it looked like before then. I, I've heard from tradies that it existed a long time ago, and I remember playing here as a kid. Good on them. But about 14 years ago, the whole thing was renovated, and, and we're pretty certain it was 14 years ago because things like the fridges that we had to replace last year and the dishwasher we had to repair this year and the zip-hot water heater with the hot and the cold and everything, which has just died, all of that stuff uh, is dated. And you can see that everything went in. When does that make it? I guess like 2007. Uh, now, at the time, apparently the thing to do with lighting was halogens. Now, halogen bulbs, they burn very, very hot. They use a lot of electricity and they blow all the time. 
I counted it once, there are about 135 halogen bulbs in this house, which is just insane. And part of the reason there's so many, like, all right, it's a large house, but they don't have a great spread of light most of the time. They're not particularly bright. They are very glary. So when I look at my living room, which is not ginormous, but it's large enough that it has nine bulbs in like a three by three pattern, which is an absolute waste of space, frankly. Now then we live right next to the ocean and everything's in like metal surrounds. So we've got all these metal surrounds that are corroding and they're either getting stuck or they're corroding to the point where they're damaging the lights or they just look like shit because they're worn out. So I've gradually been replacing these with LEDs, such as you can see the pink and the blue ones all the way around uh, above my head here. So the other day we replaced 22 out the front of my house, 22 halogen bulbs with LEDs. Now these are LED downlights. They're just the recessed ones that sit up in the roof. Uh, for the Aussies, I just bought a bunch of these from Bunnings. I got a bunch of Arlec ones, a bunch of 70 mil diameter ones, a bunch of 92 di uh, mil diameter ones. And these go up there into uh, into the roof and they're Wi-Fi connected. So they are now part of the network. So 22 more IP addresses in the house. I've, uh, I've paired these with Tuya uh, into Home Assistant. And someone tweeted me the other day and they're like, I'm having, I forget how they phrase it. They said that they feel very uneasy that it's using Tuya to control it because... I'm not sure if they said they're uneasy because it's a Chinese brand or they're uneasy because it's phoning home and it basically requires cloud control. You know, why don't you go and flash all of these with uh, with um, Tasmoda or ESP Home or something like that? I was talking to Lars about this yesterday, my good mate Lars Clint, who's been doing similar things as well. And the, the, the issue that both of us have here is that this this flashing path is just super... If someone made a device where they're like, here's the device, just pair it with this device, it will flash everything and you're good to go. I'd be like, sweet, awesome, job done. But every time I look at going down the flashing path, it seems like a very clunky, messy process that I just don't feel very comfortable with in terms of uh, longevity and support and all the rest of it. Not to mention the effort involved in doing that for every single light bulb now got in the house. I would love someone to create that device. So if you would like to make a community contribution, actually create a device that I could just put on my desk and easily flash things, I would happily go through and flash these lights. The main downside that I have with stuff being controlled by cloud is not so much the cloud dependency. I don't really care that maybe the Chinese know when I turn my light globes on or not. Uh, if they really wanted to know that, they could sit over the road and watch. <laughs> There's some practical guidance for you. It's more the latency. So at the moment, the Zigbee devices I've got, and I'm going to talk about the new Zigbee ones I've got in a moment, and the other ones that are controlled by our, uh, MQTT locally, everything's instantaneous. So I turn on a scene, it's just like, bang, it's done. And then all of these little two-year connected light bulbs are bop, 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 all over the house, and it literally takes, now that I've got so many light bulbs, something like 15 seconds to turn the entire house on. But that doesn't really matter for normal usage. So, for example, the, the evening scene. I, I said to Charlotte last night, um, I was downstairs, I was like, isn't it cool all the lights are on? I didn't even notice them come on. They just came on at the right time of day. And if they come on, I think I set it to come on like 30 minutes before sunset. If they come on over a 15-second period, 30 minutes before sunset, and I'm like sitting here and outside all these things are coming, I don't really care that they come on bit by bit. I do care when I'm sitting there trying to like code the house. Probably looked really weird yesterday. I was over the other side of the road with my laptop <laughs> looking at all the colors on the house trying to code it in. So I would like to move them off the cloud, but it's not. I, th th there's got to be an ROI. 
So there's got to be enough benefit to justify the mucking around with flashing custom firmware. Now, the uh, I mentioned more Zigbee things. So as part of replacing all the broken shit in this house at the moment, um, one of the things that I've replaced is outdoor lights. And I had a bunch of outdoor lights by the pool shining up at palm trees. And when I say I, they were here in the house, original lights from 14 years ago. Some of them worked, <laughs> some of them didn't. There seemed to be a bunch of different style of outdoor light. Many of them were corroded. Many of them couldn't even stand up straight anymore. Uh, and there's one wall that has five of them. So it's like five palm trees, five lights pointing up the palm trees. So I ended up getting some Philips Hue Lily. Now you can get Lily and you can get Lily XL. And these look really cool. They're all in like a matte black. They've got a nice shade around them as well. So you don't get glare back in another direction. They weren't cheap. But I figure the last one's got about 14 years out of them. And if these ones get the same, yeah, not so bad. Now, the cool thing is they're Philips Hue. You can use them with a Philips Hue hub. That's obviously what Philips wants you to do. But they're Zigbee based. So the other Philips Hue stuff that I've got in the in the house. So, for example, I've got a Hue Go there and a Hue Go there and a Hue light strip under the desk. Incidentally, I wouldn't spend your, your money on a Hue light strip anymore because you can get other light strips which are equally, if not even equally as good if not even better for a fraction of the price but the hue goes are actually pretty cool so the lilies uh, externally i couldn't find another alternative for those which which was more cost effective that i thought was good but the lilies are really really good so i paired them all directly to decons with the combi to um, uh, zigbee sniffer directly into home assistant so now i've got like a more more zigbee coverage because every mains powered zigbee device works as a repeater as well and i've got these five uh, lilies out there which look really really cool i've got to take a photo of those actually and I'll, I'll tweet that at some time i'm really really happy with those so i think i'm going to put more of them outside the house that's it's funny now you look at the house and particularly if i make it colorful which is not something i'll normally do but when you do it does look kind of epic and the house looks awesome but then like the wall in front and all the plants look very very dark so i'm going to replace more of them so the uh Big, big tick to the uh, Philips Hue Lily, but at a premium price. A couple of questions here. Um, so, Jashans, Jashans, Jesper, Jesper, Jesper. Uh, thanks for elaborating in your password manager. Considering your email account is key for resetting compromised lost passwords, should the password for the email account be stored separately from the general portfolio of accounts and passwords? No, not really. I, I can't think of a good reason to do that. Uh, if you've got a strong password on your email account, and of course two-factor, and particularly if most people are on Gmail or something these days, turn on uh, Google Advanced Protection where you actually need a U2F key as well. Uh, so you turn 2FA on all your things, but particularly on the Google accounts because it is the skeleton key to your life. If you've got two-factor, then at least uh, if it's two-factor via U2F key, such as a key, you can't have that fished. So that would make it very, very solid. I'd be very comfortable storing my password for my email account in my password manager. Bloodthirsty. If downloading leaked databases is illegal, how do you stay legally safe with Have I Been Pwned? Everyone knows you own it and you obviously download it. <laughs> so this is, a, this is the second time I've had this question in the last, probably the last 12 hours. <laughs> I had someone ask me that question last night. There's a really easy answer. It's very, very grey. Uh, and I... Um, I did a, I actually did an AMA at OzCert, um, an in-person conference only two weeks ago, and I got asked the same question. And the story I told then, the one I tell all the time, is that 
when I was going through the Have I Been Pwned M&A, the merger and acquisition, where there was a period there, I was like, look, the best thing for Have I Been Pwned is to find an organization, take it over. We went through enormous amounts of pain, we being KPMG, who are running the, the M&A, and myself, trying to establish the legal basis for it. And it is massively grey, and it's massively grey for many reasons. It's like, it is illegally obtained data. I don't like the word stolen simply because I don't think it translates well digitally. If someone steals your car, you don't have a car anymore. If someone, air quotes, steals your data, you still have your data, but they also have your data. So I don't think it's a good term. Illegally obtained, I think, is a good term. Um, the, the, the problem is, is that you've now got all this illegally obtained data. It's spread out there all over. The, let's take Ashley Madison, right? Uh, and that's just a good one as an example, because it was massively impactful, but massively broadly distributed. The, the whole MO of the Ashley Matters Madison attackers is they wanted to make that data as broadly available as possible. The crime has happened. The data has been taken. It's everywhere. Now, what do we do? If we take the attitude that it's legal to have it and no one should have it, bad guys don't care. Like they have it anyway, and they use that data for bad purposes. So that's, that's a problem. So what, what do we then do? And, and I guess the, where I keep coming back to with Have I Been Pwned is that I use it for what I think is the best possible purpose under the circumstances, which is to let people know <laughs> they've been pwned or to use the passwords to try and stop them from being reused. Now, the conclusion that we end up drawing with, with the M&A stuff uh, was this. We invite bidders to form their own views on the legal basis for processing. It was always that, always boiled back down to that. And many organizations around the world did believe that they could use it in legitimate ways. Uh, many organizations also felt that it was too hot. It was, it was too much of a risk in order to go down that path. But what I would say is that every major tech company you can think of has the same data, mostly the same data that I haven't have a Ben Pwned. Uh, we know this. Amazon, for example, regularly sends emails to people and says, we have found your email address and password pair in a data breach. Please change it. They download the data breaches and they do something really useful with it. Good on them for that. I've had occasions where I've spoken to regulators around the world and continually sort of put this question to them. It's like, look, we, we want to have strong privacy laws. Hackers, they don't care too much about the privacy laws. Data breaches happen. This data is now out there. What is the best possible thing that we can now do? And that's not to say, look, can you can you sort of like pass a law to make have a been pwned or give them an exemption to have all of this data? But it, it's more to say, what what is the best path forward? Because if we just take the attitude of saying nobody should have this data, then only the bad people have the data. If we take the attitude of saying that there are valid use cases for the data and here's, you know, maybe what fits into that scenario, that's a better solution. But then it sort of flies in the face of privacy first and the only people that should have the data is the people and then the organization they trusted it to and they gave their informed consent to be used in a certain way. It's it's extraordinarily grey and, and I guess the the precedence that we have when we look at where has it gone legally wrong. Think about like the WeLeak info and the leaked source scenarios where both these services got taken down and people running them got sent to jail. They were selling huge volumes of personal data advertised on hacking forums with the express purpose of how do we fuck with people? Like that was, that, that could have literally been their banner. 
because it was very much about, here, go and buy this person's data, get their name and their address and their phone number and their date of birth, and then use it in your service to extort them or take over their accounts. And I kind of feel good that those people go to jail. I think that's the right way to put it. Um, I don't believe that's going to happen to me because of the way the data is used. And of course, having the likes of many, many governments on board, I've got to get to another government in a moment, actually. Many, many governments on board and working with law enforcement agencies in the, in the way we're doing with the FBI, with Emotet, and then, of course, with this poem password stuff, uh, I think is is a good representation of how how authorities view have I been pwned. I think that's that's maybe the the most the most accurate way I can put it. All right, what else is going on here? Uh, upload the download. Are the lights on their own VLAN? So I wrote, I did a five-part IoT series where I wrote about um, all my IoT stuff. And one bit here was on security. And there was a bit there where I sort of said, uh, I do have separate SSIDs. So I do have an IoT SSID and a primary SSID. I've now got something like, I think, 140 IP addresses on the, uh, on the IoT SSID. I used to have them on a VLAN, and the, the reason I stopped doing it is that it creates all sorts of different problems in terms of particularly things like the Sonos. You know, the Sonos would be on the IoT network on a VLAN, but it needs to be able to see the controlling app. If you can't see the controlling app, which is on my phone on the primary LAN, then things go wrong. You can then start creating firewalls to open up certain ports and protocols, and you get into this massive kludge of different problems. Have a read of the blog post. I think it's like part three or something, which is on security. And I go into more detail in there. So not at the moment, but I can always just flick that over. And then the only problem I'm going to have is if I use a different subnet on the other VLAN, I've got some places where I've got statically assigned or reserved IP addresses, which then feature in some YAML configuration Home Assistant. I'd have to update that. But it, it should be a pretty painless exercise to roll over. All right, I'm conscious of time, so I'm going to cut through some of this. Um, all right, let me just go on to my next things here, because I do want to talk about a few other bits. 3D printing. Uh, I tweeted that I've been printing these. <laughs> so this is a little, have I been buying 3D print? As I said in the tweet, like to be honest, like one of the reasons that I actually got the 3D printer in the first place, probably the primary reason, is I wanted to print these out and give them to people because they're kind of cool. So I started printing a lot of them. I actually worked out a um, worked out how to fit 10 of them on a print bed. I got up this morning. This is what it looks like when they come hot off the printer. Look at that. Just off the print this morning. And it's so satisfying when you can kind of oh, crack them off the, uh, off the print bed and they just sort of pop off like this. And um, all of these, and they are ready to go to someone. Of all the things I have to do, of all the priorities I have, somehow I end up just like 3D printing masses of have I been pwned uh, logos. But everyone who saw these when I tweeted about it was like, I must have one of these. I would pay for this. And I don't think that would be a particularly good ROI on my time to just like go into manufacturing have I been pwned 3D printed logos. But I do want to start giving some of these out. So as I get to travel again to events, I will start to give these out. And uh, as I said in the announcement post about the .NET Foundation, the FBI stuff, I will start to send these to people that are making significant contributions as well. 
So they, they will make their way out. Plus, I put another repository under the Have I Been Pwned organization that has the STL for these. So if anyone has their own 3D printer and wants to print their own, go and grab the STL. Now, just since I mentioned travel, uh, particularly for folks overseas, what I think a lot of people don't understand at the moment is that Australia is in a very, very different position to the rest of the world. We have had very, very few instances of COVID compared to the rest of the world. Now, we've had our exceptions. We've had our waves. We've got a little uptick in Victoria at the moment. They've just gone into a one-week lockdown. But particularly where I am here on the Gold Coast in Queensland, since the whole COVID thing began, there has been one period of time where we have needed to wear masks, which was, uh, I think it was just before Easter. And it was like a week. And and that was it. Otherwise, it's it's pretty much everything is normal. You just do not see people wearing masks if you walk down the street. If, if you do, it's really exceptional. And it's not that we're being irresponsible. We just simply don't have it here. When there is a bit of an outbreak, such as in Melbourne at the moment, things get locked down really, really quickly. And I think the last time I read yesterday, there were like 25 cases. Now, this is in a country of 25 million. And to put it in context, our state here, 5.1 million people, spread over a landmass twice the size of Texas. We've had, I think it's now up to seven deaths from COVID. Uh, and most of those were, were elderly or off a cruise ship. I think there was like one case of a guy in his 30s. So we've weathered it extremely well. But because of that, vaccine rollout is very, very slow. We have had, last time I checked, I think only about 4 million doses. Of course, you need the two doses. And that's out of a population of 25 million, of which some of them won't get it because they're kids uh, or, or other reasons. Not all good reasons. So it's going very, very slowly. And what I keep hearing is I've got friends friends and family in other parts of the world, and they're like, I've had my two shots. I'm coming to Australia. So no, you're not. Like you have absolutely no chance of coming to Australia. We had our federal budget handed down a couple of weeks ago, and the government said that they do not expect international travel to resume in pretty much any shape or form until the second half next year. Now, for the most part, we don't care, other than Charlotte's family is Norwegian, so she can't go and see them. They can't come here to see us, uh, and we are getting married at some time, and we kind of want her family to be there. But other than that, eh, not such a biggie. It's, it's nice being at home. But anyway, the point is, when it comes to actually going places and handing things out, I'm going to be doing more Oz travel. I'll probably start to do some more Oz events, but you're not going to see me in another country for at least another year uh, and possibly a lot longer than that. Ben's here. G'day, Ben. Um, looking at other bits and pieces here. Last thing, and then I've been going nearly an hour, so I'm going to wrap this up and go and do my other video that I actually need to do. Trinidad and Tobago. Tobago, Tobago, Caribbean country. Caribbean, Caribbean. Country is now on Have I Been Pwned. So they are the latest government to come on board, Have I Been Pwned. I have got a list literally on my little black book over here of different countries, my little black uh, Australian Cybersecurity Centre book, of different countries that are now scheduled to come on. I've got a backlog that is actually going to keep me going for quite some time. I'm going to do one a week. So there's another one that's going to come on next week. It will be a country from a part of the world which will be the first from that part of the world, and it's a significant part of the world. And I'm just going to keep onboarding them as long as countries want to come on board. So uh, so that's great. They get free and open access to domain search APIs so that they can query any domains on their government domain. So, for example, Australia, 
it's literally like star.gov.au and then some other domains on an allow list because things like our CSIRO, our scientific research group, uh, is not on a gov TLD. They're on a, I think they're on a .com.au. So they're the latest ones. There'll be more of those. And I guess to the point about even working with the FBI stuff, the more things that that I can do that help governments and law enforcement do what they do, frankly, the better for everyone because those folks are out there trying to trying to do good things for us and, and normally doing it under great amounts of duress as well. All right. So look, I think that's about the extent to what I have available time-wise today, just looking, it's still only 6.30 in the morning. Uh, thank you very much for joining this week. Please go and check out that open source repository, repositories for Have I Been Pwned, both the Cloudflare one and the Azure Function one. I'd really love to see people starting to, to, to contribute some code. Again, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to handle it all yet. I'll work it out as I get to it. And hopefully we can... Uh, over the course of what I suspect will still be some period of months, we can work towards that ingestion pipeline for, for the FBI to provide passwords and then over time for other organizations to provide passwords as well and hopefully get to the point where, where we can do something that's actually really, really super useful and, uh, and maybe put, put a bit of a dent in the cybercrime. Thanks, folks. See you later.